0: Good morning. morning. It's good to be with you. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in God's word to the book of Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6. talking together about the subject of nominal Christianity. We've been looking at the letters to the seven churches in Revelation this season. We've looked at the letter to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and to Thyatira in chapter 2. And we're getting ready now to look at the letter to Sardis for the Sardians in chapter 3. And then sometime after the holiday break, we'll look at the letters to Philadelphia and Laodicea. That's where this is going. So we're going to be reading from the book of Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Before we do, and I'll probably ask you to stand for that when we get to it, I want to kind of frame it like this, with a riddle. Riddle me this. Businessmen are encouraged to memorize it in order to retain sales. Adam gave them to the animals as an act of God's shared responsibility with man. Your parents continue to share that responsibility and are therefore worthy of a measure of respect just for carrying your little life into this world. They gave you one. The church keeps yours listed on the member roll as an act of covenant responsibility, reminding one another to pray for one another systematically and carefully. It's been called the sweetest sound anyone can hear. What is it? The answer, your name. That's right. Think about yours for a moment. I mean, really, stop and think about it. First, middle, and last. As you're thinking, think to answer the question, what meaning does it have, for good or for ill? How'd you get your name? Does it remind you of where you come from? Perhaps that you don't want to stay. I know of one pastor that kept his Muslim name because he wanted to be reminded of where he'd come from. In his conversion, the Apostle Paul never quite outgrew the name Saul. He was delivered, but he never quite outgrew the name Saul, even though he was the Apostle Paul. When we're delivered, we still have our names. What do our names mean? Perhaps you have fond memories about your family of origin. Maybe you're glad to carry the family name. Maybe you look at the name of your family with a certain amount of disillusionment, perhaps with good reason. Your name doesn't define you, but to some extent, it describes you. Maybe you have a nickname. If you're married... You may have, do have a, mar- a married name, most likely. What does that married name mean to you? Naming is an act of authority in God's economy. That's why Adam was tasked with in the garden with naming the animals. And remembering a name can be an act of caring concern. In the concentration camps, Corey Ten Boom's story in *The Hiding Place* tells of the guards referring to the prisoners by their number and not by their name. It was a way of dehumanizing them. And the story, as it goes, talks of how she was faced with the need to forgive a guard that learned her name long after she had been a number. I recommend the biography to you. It's titled The Hiding Place. Now thinking of our name and particularly about the name that is above every name. We know what that name is, don't we? Jesus Christ. And considering the fact that the word name is going to appear four times in our text today, three explicitly, one translated reputation, let's stand and listen to the reading of God's Word. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and this is the Word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, "...the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars." I know your works. You have the reputation, or name, if you, the KJV says name, of being alive. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3, Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name Out of the book of life, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would press this word down deep into our hearts, that it would be more than just a mental assent, that our labor today would be one of love, by your grace, through your name, amen. Please be seated. This is God's counsel to the church at Sardis. Notice the emphasis on the church's name or the church's reputation in the community, as well as Jesus' view of a few worthy names in this church and the names that are never blotted out of the book of life, and how he will confess every believer's name before the Father's angels. Notice the tenor line of the text, and notice the imperatives, how The angel at the church at Sardis is given this passage, and the apostle John that wrote it down was told to write this passage on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And notice how they're told to do certain things with imperatives, wake and strengthen and remember and keep and repent and hear. This is assertions from Jesus himself. Indeed, he's being assertive. As we read, I neither want the assurance to take away from the urgency nor the urgency to take away from the assurance. They're both there. They're both needed. I've been writing a sermon review blog for our website each week of this Revelation series, and I titled one of them, Comfort the Afflicted and Afflict the Comfortable. That carries some help here as well. This is what Jesus is doing. He's presenting a comforting assurance to those striving in faith and in urgent affliction to the complacent, the numb, nominal Christians. So we're going to see here in verses 1 and 6, Jesus knows their reputation, their name in the community. He knows what it is. We're going to see in verses 2 and 3, Jesus graciously afflicting the comfortable, the comfortable names on the church member role. And then we're going to see in verses 4 and 5, Jesus comforting the faithful names at his church. So there is both and here, as we've said in these previous sermons. More simply put, let's just notice in in our first point that Jesus knows. In our second point, that Jesus afflicts. And in our third point, Jesus comforts. So taking it on its parts, let's refresh. With verse 6 and then verse 1, Jesus knows. He knows their name in the community. Look again at verse 6. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit, the triune God communicating in lockstep. Here, the Spirit carrying the freight. Look at verse 1 now. And to the angel, or perhaps the messenger, or the pastor, of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So what do we notice here? Jesus is speaking to all the churches, not just the church at Sardis, or only the seven churches in that horseshoe shape of churches in Asia Minor, which today is Turkey, that these letters were originally drafted for or meant to be read aloud in. In fact, in these opening seven letters of Revelation, the seven churches are a way of symbolizing the number of completion, speaking to the complete church, to the church, the bride of the groom, who is Christ, awaiting that great wedding day to come that, at the, that the end of Revelation talks about itself. The consummate union of Christ and His people will be on complete display on the day of the Lord. This counsel here in Revelation 3 is critical for getting us to that day. Jesus wants you to hear today what the Spirit says to the churches, and particularly to this church, for that's what it's there for. It seems to be read and heard and applied. Friends, the Spirit is the only way we get where we're going. I ask you today, are you stale? Seek to stay in step with the Spirit. Cry out in request to God's indwelling Spirit. Are you unsaved this morning? Ask God to regenerate your heart by the power of the Spirit that we might be friends in all of eternity. Zechariah says that it's not by power or by might, but by my Spirit that the Lord does His work. The new covenant in Christ's blood is a new covenant... And that the Spirit doesn't come and go as in the Old Testament times. But the Spirit comes and stays, resides, testifies to your salvation. Jesus can refer to this church, even this numb, nominal, knuckle-headed church, as His church. Because His people are in that church. What we say about churches is we're pursuing a regenerate church membership it's a baptist distinctive it's a biblical distinctive we want our church role to as rightly as possible reflect actual christians this isn't some kind of a of a just a social event or a country club it's designed to have people on it that actually worship the risen lord jesus christ that have the spirit in them that's the point but we have to understand that it's not an exact science it's a pursuit. The day of the Lord will separate the wheat from the tares. We we don't discipline every sin. I mean, who of us would ever take the Lord's Supper? I mean, for real. It's only the most egregious, outward, in-your-face, denying perhaps the name of Christ in word or deed that we actually discipline. Why? Because we want to have a, a faithful witness to Christ. But it's not an exact science. But I'll tell you who it is an exact science with. That is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The Son in glory sees you perfectly into your core. And He knows needy from nominal. He knows sincere from knuckleheaded. He knows the secret crevices of your life. And you do well for your assurance of life to level with God and His people. The Spirit is at work in the people of God. And I'm satisfied, unsaved person, if you'll receive the Lord, you'll find the Spirit at work in you. And I trust the Spirit's work in your life, even if you struggle with some of the same knuckle-headed tendencies of the church at Sardis as we're learning about today. So, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says of churches. In another place in the New Testament, those that have the Spirit understand that the Spirit intercedes for us with words that we, we can't, with utterances that don't even make words, with groans. The Spirit, Romans 8 talks about this. The Spirit's at work on your behalf. You're not doing this alone. No wisdom or scheme or worldly fix or New Year's self-help books. Our greatest new fix or thing perceived in Christianity is better than the orthodox faith once for all delivered to the saints. The Spirit at work in you, administering the Word of our Lord into your life. God builds His church by His Word through the Spirit. For a church to be healthy and vibrant as Jesus sees it, we must have the Spirit. It's not enough to be on the church roll. We must be born again. We must know Him. But it is necessary as well that we seek the things of God. And it's important that we're on a church roll somewhere for the accountability and admonition that comes based on good biblical doctrine. However, the first order is to convert. It's to be a believer. And if you're not today, I want you to know the gospel is free to you. Jesus paid it all. You don't have to pay anything. In fact, it's treasonous if you try to pay something. There's nothing you can do. To attain to your salvation. He's attained it for you. That you can have it. If you'll just confess his name. If you'll stop trying to make your own. You can have it. It's there for you. And it is precious. It's changed my life. It's changed the life of dozens of other people sitting around you too. And they can tell you about it. With joy. And we want it to change your life too. It will today. Just receive the Lord. If you have more questions about that. See one of our elders after church. We'd love to talk and pray with you. Love to talk and pray with you today. It's so important. Christians need to come back, though, to the framing lens of the Spirit's work in our life. And verse 1 is about the Spirit, that glorious Him, that Spirit who resides in every believer at conversion. Jesus gives the words that we are to hear. These are His, but so are the seven spirits, which is a way of talking about the Spirit we learn in chapter 1, verse 4, and in Zechariah 2 and 3. And we see the opposite of the seven spirits operating as the evil spirit in Matthew 12, 34, with the cleaning of the house parable. The complete evil spirit will be conquered by the complete Holy Spirit, the third person in the real trinity, not the counterfeit. That is God. Jesus has the spirit in the pastors of the churches of the seven stars, and this angel in particular has the spirit. This pastor preaching to the members as they hear need to hear and operate in faith and do. Faith without works is dead, the book of James says. We have a faith that works. And the Bible has warnings for us, real warnings, with a sense of urgency about feckless faith. Hearings without doings. God knows our works if they're incomplete, regardless of your reputation in the community. I'm impressed the way the editors at GotQuestions.org deals with this question of nominal Christianity. They say, what is it? And they say the answer like this. They say a nominal presidency, for example, is one in which the president is nothing more than a figurehead. A nominal vacation is one in which the vacationers must still do work. Nominalism has to do with empty formalities, things so-called, and meaningless labels. Nominalism exists in religious circles. Nominal Christians, they write, are churchgoers or otherwise religious people whose faith does not go beyond self-identifying with a church or a group. They're Christians in name only. Christ doesn't have bearing on their lives. Nominal Christians may attend, functions, and even self-identify with Christ, but it's only a label. It's the kind of situation which Jesus, on the last day, Matthew 7 says, will be confronted with folks that says, Didn't we do works in your name? And he'll say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Now that is not a passage that is meant to send shuddering the sensitive consciences of the truly regenerate amongst our membership. It is supposed to be a cry to the thick, numb, knuckleheaded people among us that do not let the Word of God penetrate without being slapped over the head with it. That's what passages like Matthew 7 is for. So tender consciences, don't let your hearts be damaged by this hard message. I'm talking to the self-assured knuckleheads in the group. That's who I'm talking to. And I pray it's not me talking. I pray it's the Spirit of the living God. Because if you're a knucklehead that has the Spirit, the Spirit ministers to you with words and even groanings that I don't understand. But you do. Because God is at work in your life. It's not just a label. God question? says they, this type of person views religion primarily as a social construct. They don't allow it to require much of them in terms of morality or responsibility. Nominalists take a minimalist approach to their faith. Reasons for nominalism, they, they muse. They say perhaps nominalism is, is easier than facing true vibrant faith. Or perhaps state religions, where everyone's automatically thinking they're a Christian because they're a part of a certain country, has caused nominalism. Perhaps uh, legalism can lead to nominalism. It makes us place compliance as a replacement as, of conversion. Uh, where some people conform to standards imposed upon them by others without inner transformation that can only be produced by the Spirit through the Word, like Galatians 6.15 says. One can keep the rules and claim the label Christian, but not have a relationship with Christ. Jesus is dealing with nominal Christianity in this fifth of seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, this church at Sardis. They wore a Christian label, but Jesus saw through the veneer He saw the truth behind the label. That's why it says to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who hold the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the seven pastors, the Holy Spirit. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Or as the KJV says, thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Name, reputation. God is not interested in the labels we tag on ourselves. Having a name that belongs to Christ is what's important. It's Jesus' name. Nominal faith is not living faith. And so then to bounce to the other side here for just a moment, as we're looking at this reputation of the church, that Jesus knows. Tim Keller writes like this on this subject. He says when you're talking to sleepy Christians, or even in an effort to convert nominal Christians, maybe you have a lethargy, or maybe your nominalism is evidence of actually not being, and you need to convert. He says three things. He says, ask a person, this is insider talk, ask the person when you're counseling with them, how real has God been in your heart this week, to your heart? How clear and vivid is your assurance and certainty of God's forgiveness and fatherly love of you? Are you having any particular season of sweet delight in God? Have you had it? Do you sense his presence in your life? Do you sense his giving you his love? Or do you find, number two, the the Scripture to be alive and active in your life? Instead of just being a book, does it feel like it's coming to you and searching you out? Are you finding certain promises from the Bible extremely precious and encouraging to your soul at given times? Which ones are they? Are you finding God is calling you to something through the Word? in, In what ways is He calling you to something through the Word? Or he says, thirdly, are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now than you did in the past? Are you conscious of the growing sense of the evil in your own heart and in response a growing sense of dependence and preciousness on the mercy of God? I think those are wonderful questions. Because we all go through dark night experiences of our soul. We all go through dry times. The question is just, has there ever been a warm time? A time when you came to know Jesus as Savior. When you professed Him as Lord and began to walk with Him. Because the Lord is real in your life, and from time to time you know it more than others. The Scripture counsels you, and you're aware of it. And God's grace moves you, and it matters. And so I ask you today: be comforted. Do you have evidence of the Spirit's work in your life to be comforted by? And if so, praise Him for it all the more today. But this particular church was riddled with Christians in name only. That's why it's a tough text. Because the church at Sardis had a reputation in the community for being, well, a pretty helpful church. But Jesus was not impressed. So he graciously affi- afflicts the comfortable names on the church member role. And so that's our second point. Our first point was Jesus knows their name in the community. Our second point is Jesus afflicts the comfortable names on the church member role. Notice in this text how aware Jesus is. If you want to look down at your Bibles in verse 2, I know, I know your works. He knows what's going on with you. He's not unaware. This is God. It's not like us. He doesn't have limited storage capacity in his thinker. When he says, I know your works, this is supposed to be sobering for you. And for me, some introspection is required. Jesus says, your reputation in the community is alive, but actually you're dead. Here, reputation literally means name. Bible students in seminary are required to learn Greek, and they make you learn so many vocabulary words in order to get a running start in the language of Greek. And one of those flashcards I remember learning was Anima. That's how I memorized name, because anima, anima my name, Anima my name, Anima my name, Anima. Anima is the Greek word for name. It's four times used in this text, and one of them is reputation. Name. Anima name. Now you know a Greek word. It's not all Greek to you anymore. You actually know a Greek word. Anima. Anima is name. Thus, the theme, I think, of this passage and this message. Anima name. Here, this word name is translated, at least in the ESV, in our Pew Bibles, as reputation. And Jesus says, I know that you have this reputation in the community. I know this. But I, he, he jolts them. I mean, it's like a, it's, a, it's a Jesus jolt. He shakes them. He says, I know your name in the community, but you're dead. This is, this is shocking use of language by Jesus. He is the Word who gives us the Word that we might walk in the Word. And what Jesus is saying here should be shocking. For those who've been coaxed into thinking that reputation with the world always reflects our reputation with God, this text is stark and vibrant in our imagination and our thinker. There are times when your reputation with the world does not reflect your faithfulness to the gospel or your reputation with Christ. And this was one of those times. Not always, but sometimes. Like screw Tape in C.S. Lewis's Screw tape letters, these had been lulled to slumber, to spiritual lethargy. They're not awake. And they received this jolt from Jesus. If Ephesus was guilty of uncaring conservatism and Thyatira was guilty of sensual uh, liberalism, then this church is guilty of numb nominalism. Sardis wasn't keeping watch. You see, the Jews had suffered much under the Roman Empire, but they'd finally carved out an exemption. From imperial worship. If you were a Jew, you didn't have to worship Caesar to get along. But these Nazarenes or Christians would need to be written into the book of the Jews if they were going to escape consequences for refusing to declare Caesar as their Lord, which was the law of the land. So the Jews were using their privileged religious position in the empire over the head, to hold over the heads of the Christians in Asia Minor. These churches that, as I said, were situated in modern-day Turkey were forced at times to choose between the Jewishness of their Jewish Christianity and the Christianness of their Jewish Christianity. John the Apostle, the old man now, writes this letter from Jesus to the churches while he himself is persecuted for not being a settler with the Jews. He's imprisoned, he's sequestered, he's suffered in the forced labor in rock quarries on the island of Patmos, and he writes for Jesus, at the command of Jesus, and he gives to churches like the one at Sardis what the problem is. He says, you're numb, you're nominal, you're spiritually lethargic, you need to wake up. And I'd say today, honestly, in the world of the church, I think nominalism is a big problem. It's a big problem. We think it's just the oxygen we breathe that we're automatically Christians because we just live around Christian places where there's churches on every street. In Sardis in the first century, the Jews had quite the reputation themselves. They had a thousand-seat auditorium that was situated right next to the gymnasium, which would have been the city cultural seat. Far from rejected, they were accepted. In the Jewish synagogue, they had made peace with Rome, and the Christians at Sardis may have wrongly made peace with the Jewish synagogue. These Jews had become Christian, and so they, they justified checking Jew on the census box rather than Christian. They'd made deals, perhaps, with the Jewish synagogue to secure their freedom as such. Shrewd? Yes. Innocent? I'm not so sure. Faithful? No. They had given up their gospel witness and the pursuit of holiness in order to accommodate the religious and secular culture of their day. Now, aren't we tempted today, at times, to give up our pursuit of gospel witness and holiness in order to accommodate our religious and secular culture today? Thus, Jesus would say to us, your reputation in the world is not something that I share with you. They had a name for being alive, but Jesus sees what's really going on. Your reputation doesn't hide your private life and personal choices from Jesus. Jesus calls the reputable churchmen at Sardis to complete their gospel message, to return, to remember to repent. To kind of drive this home, listen to a couple of cross-references. First from 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is what it says. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, "...heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passage passions, always learning, always hearing sermons, always learning, but never able to arrive." at a knowledge of the truth. And then glance down at verses 12 and 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying at times too much friendliness with the world is actually an enemy of his cause, for he was persecuted and we're not better than our master. And this is how it words in Timothy... Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse deceiving and themselves being deceived. Friends, I don't want you to be deceived. I want the word to work in your life in such a way that this is a wake-up call if you've been a numb Christian. Listen to Hebrews, the way it moves from the urgency of affliction to the comfort that's needed says in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 10 to 12, after all these warnings that they give in Hebrews 5 and 6, the author gives, he says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Jesus knows, he says, and we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish or spiritually lethargic but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises. Now just bake on that for just a moment. They desire that each of you show the same earnestness as to have assurance of hope until the end. So the means of grace to get us to the end is in fact the warnings of Scripture. It's, this is not designed to get you to give up on your salvation or constantly redeclare your conversion to salvation. No, instead, it's to get you to trust in the promises of Christ and to have full assurance of hope until the end comes because persecution is part of the spread of the gospel and persecution is part of what happens to Jesus' people. And we get sluggish from time to time. We get spiritually lethargic. But we inherit the promises. I hope that helps you think a little bit about the application of those that are numb and nominal. Jesus calls them to wake up. He tells them twice here, wake up, awake. I think of Peter when he was sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, He fell asleep. He couldn't stay awake. Jesus said, I need you to stay awake. We tend to sleep at all the wrong times, don't we? Even though it's part of God's plan to grant us rest as well, it's part of the fallen human condition to, to sleep on the job of spiritual things. Your growth in spiritual things is a matter of concern. It's a matter of wakefulness. You're to be awake in spiritual things, having your life shaped by the Word. I think of the parable of the ten virgins that Jesus told in the gospel, where he found most of them not ready, not aware. We want to be ready as the bride of Christ for that day. This text tells us in Revelation, gravitating back to Revelation 3, That Jesus will come to this church like a thief. Perhaps not talking about the last day, but the actual day of judgment of the church at Sardis, which no longer exists in Turkey. The judgment on that church and the church's lampstand. The metaphor of thief is all over the Gospels. Jesus will return at the second coming like a thief in the night. There won't be time to ready ourselves then. We must be ready now. We must not be complacent. Instead, we must be ready for His coming. Ready for the groom. When he comes, to put it in Jesus' parable vernacular, to quote Proverbs, it says, They hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, and they would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. The complacency of fools destroys them, but... Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread or disaster. Proverbs 1:29 to thirty three says. So Jesus then turns from his warning of the people at Sardis to reminding them that he's actually talking to them as his people. It's fascinating, really. Look at the text carefully, and you'll see it. Look at Revelation chapter three or chapter 3, verse 2, and then track it down. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains. Don't run away and start another church. Strengthen what remains right there. It's about to die. Fix your towns, people that are in the church as members. He says, I found your works incomplete. I've not found them complete in my sight. So examine them and remember where you come from, what you receive, this gospel, verse 3 says, what you heard and keep it. Get back to it. Don't go for some newfangled thing. Get back to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. After the warning, he then brings this comfort. And it says here, then, I will come like a thief. Well, he tells them to wake up again, repent, wake up. Right? Some of us are thick enough. We need these hard words. I come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. You need to be ready. It needs to be real for you. Verse 4, and he says, You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Jude 23 talks about this, the, the garments stained by flesh. Probably talking about impurity. They're talking about secret sins, perhaps. He says, they haven't soiled their garments. We have people that are walking the walk and that can help us get back on track. They will walk with me, he says, "And look at this comfort." He says, "They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." And then verse five says, "To the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father and before his angels." Fascinating comfort. Lovely, lovely comfort. You know, the warnings in Scripture are real. They're real. We must wake up to spiritual things. But the accent here then becomes Jesus' comfort for his people. He calls a church and expects them by the Spirit to be led to respond. Listen, nominal Christian. Seeing that you are a Christian, today is a day to refresh your remembering of your salvation. Growing in your grace is similar to receiving grace in this way. Jesus is taking dead things and making them alive. He's taking cold things and making them warm. He's taking lifeless things and giving them life. I think of Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, but God intervenes on our behalf. And he does it again and again to assure us, to call us back to him He is as in charge of our sanctification as He is of our salvation. He is involved in that chain all the way to glory. This will be an ongoing process, but these warnings are a part of it. We can't just drift. We have to take heed lest we fall and keep and keep it and repent and have a change of mind and attitude and behavior and come back to it and get back on the gospel track, to get back to purity if you've left it to return to the white garments that He promises you'll wear on that day of the Lord. It's the keeping of the kept. It's the persevering with the saints, which we must. You know, much is made of the distinctions between Calvinism and Arminianism theologically, and rightly so. But there is an agreeable point. God only saves some. Not all names are in Jesus. And you must persevere to the end to be considered a sincere christian. We don't teach reconversion here, but we do teach reconsideration, remembering, repenting, redoing, because that's what this says. We are we are here to afflict the comfortable so that then you can be comforted in your afflictions. And thus as Colossians says, fill up the afflictions of Christ These are his promises, friend, and I assure you, it's worth waking up and eliminating nominalness from your life and feeling spiritual nerves afresh in your body and finding healing for your weariness and growth. It's possible to be more at peace and more at rest facing punishment for your profession than it is to feel at peace and at rest with the ease and the coziness of making peace with the Jews and the Romans when it could cost you your livelihood or even your life. Finally, I'll say this. As we've said, Jesus knows about the reputation of a wayward church, and Jesus afflicts those that have fallen into spiritual lethargy. Jesus finally comforts them. And we've already alluded to that and spoken of that, but I want to specifically show you how this text comforts you, and then say amen. So what Jesus says here in verse 4 bears repeating. You have a few names in Sardis, faithful Christians, that have not gotten into this. And they walk with me. They don't run with the pace of the world. They walk with me in white. And it's beautiful here. It says that they are worthy. It says they're worthy. You know, actually, Jesus is the one that's worthy. There's a, a song, He is worthy. And there's, it's, like a, it's like a congregational refrain. We may do that sometime. Uh, One of our brothers in the church sent it to me a few weeks ago because it it mirrors Revelation 4. Worthy is he to receive glory and and honor and power, for he created all things, and by his will we existed and were created, talking about the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his grandeur. But here the worthy one calls you worthy. His worthiness is imparted to you that you might be considered worthy. You are considered worthy. It's a beautiful assurance, really. It's only found in Jesus. It's not found in the world. And he, he doubles, even triples down on that because he says that you are worthy because he's worthy. And he says, overcome, conquer because you're going to be clothed with pure garments and victorious white garments. And he says here, I will no, no, never blot your name out of this book of life. Not that it could be. It's as if, it's as if he's saying here, I would never do that to you, I won't blot your name out of this book. In fact, there was a real danger of having your name blotted out of the books in the synagogue or in the Roman citizenry. If you had the death penalty, the Romans would mark your name off as if you never existed in the book registry. And the Jews that had made cozy relationships in certain cases with the state... The Christians, the Nazarenes as they were called, that wouldn't cozy up to the Jews and wouldn't deny aspects of their faith and undermine the gospel in order to get along with the Jews. The Jews would not include them in their registry and therefore the Nazarenes became targets. They had an X on their back if they didn't make concessions of their gospel with the Jews. And they would be thus blotted out of the book of the Jews according to the curse of Menem. And thus in Rome, you could be blotted out as you were killed. Jesus is as if to say here, I want you to know in your persecution, friend, I know your reputation there is not pristine, but I see you. I see your works, and I want you to know, no, never, ever, ever, ever will I do to you in my book of life what they do to you in their book of life. It won't happen. I've got your back. That's what Jesus says to you. And he triples down on it by saying this, I'm going to confess your name. You know how you're confessing my name and you're putting your neck on the line? I'm going to confess your name before my father and before his angels. It's going to be like a graduation roll call when you get there, friend. It's going to be like, you know, Addington, Brad. Hey, welcome. You know, Doty, Russell. Hey, welcome. You know, It's going to be like a graduation roll call at the end. I know your name. Don't you want to be included in that, friends? Isn't that encouraging for you believers? Jesus, at the consummation of all things, is going to confess your name before the Father and before the angels and all the powers of this world. All the rulers are going to see who the ruler is. Because there's no authority on this earth of which Jesus is not senior to. And all the names people made for themselves with their businesses and with their little kingdoms and their little fiefdoms. Jesus laughs, Psalm 2 says, and on that day... What's he going to do? He's going to confess your name before the Father. Who's going to have a name then, folks? And whose name's really going to matter? As the bride of Christ, it's going to be the name that is above all names that the children talked about in their program, right? It's Jesus Christ in whom we trust. And now we pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's a difficult time for us in a sea of nominalness. We need your comfort We need to be called back through the warnings, back to faithful witness and holiness. And at the same time, Lord, we know You promised to comfort us in our salvation. We know that You promised to comfort us in our worthiness in You, in our nameliness in You. We see what you've done for us, and that you'll know no, never blot our names from the book of life. As we track in Revelation and see that, we thank you in advance that you have freed us from the need to make a name for ourselves because you've covered us with your reputation, with your name. So thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and come. Amen. Let's take just a few seconds to think about God's word this morning, and then we'll have some instructions for our dismissal. Amen. Please remain seated as we conclude our service. Our ushers will release you row by row. And God bless you.